This morning we are going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And I will be, uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two, two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the, down the mountain of, Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice uh, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if, they, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So in my junior year, the summer of, after my junior year of college, I went to Moscow, Russia for two months on a missions trip. And uh, that was interesting in itself. But towards the end of the trip, I was looking at our return tickets and I noticed that we had an 18 hour uh, overnight layover in London. And, that there were, and I knew that there were no preparations made. Uh, for what we were going to do. We we're going to be in the airport. We're we going to be outside. <laughs> what in the world are we going to do for 18 hours uh, in London? Well, uh, it, well it, you know, you might have put that question to you. What, uh, you know, what do you think you know, a bunch of tired college students would do in an uh, overnight situation like that? Sleep, of course, is not one of the options, uh, so we did what anyone would do, any sane person would do, which is to leave the hotel at midnight and spend the next four hours running around the streets of London, seeing as many sights as we could before we had to go to the airport. And so we saw Big Ben and, and, uh, and Westminster Abbey, which uh, honestly did, did look a bit creepy at night. Uh, it's that gothic architecture, you know. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and then we got to Buckingham Palace, and, and I have to admit, like, I, I was a bit underwhelmed. <laughs> and, and now, it feels very privileged to say I was underwhelmed by seeing a palace, <laughs> but, uh, but I guess it just, in my mind, it was bigger. <laughs> it, in my mind, it was just kind of just taller, grander, I don't know, something about it. Now, it's way fancier than the house I live in, <laughs> all right? Uh, but, uh, but it just was a lot bigger, and, and, uh, and so actually seeing it in person uh, was, was honestly a bit of a letdown. So there's a, there's a, I get a, a bit of a sense of the same feeling when I read this text. 
because you know this this passage is uh, is tied to the resurrection celebration around Easter time, uh, and it's and it's it and it's often referred to as Palm Sunday, right? The week before Christ is crucified. And uh, this text is often labeled in our Bibles as the triumphal entry. But how triumphal uh, is it actually? It's actually a bit anticlimactic when you read it and you think about what they were perhaps expecting or what, what did they expect at the end of it? Was there just kind of an awkward silence? We're like, okay, we're, we're here and nothing happens. Because uh, the, the thing is, is even though we, we resonate with what they say and what they sing about Christ, we also know what's coming. And it's not a coronation. It's a crucifixion. But Jesus knows that too. And yet he does this. So what gives? Well, Alvin referred to the, um, the ministry of Christ in terms of the already but not yet. And that is true here. Jesus is publicly, for the first time, embracing his role as the king of his people. But his kingship is not consummated yet. He has not been enthroned yet. But this this text still teaches us about his kingship. And so as we ponder the kingship of Christ this morning... We will consider how he is the king, the knowing king, the humble king, and finally, the worthy king. So we begin this morning with Christ as the knowing king, verses 28 through 34. And here, as they approach Jerusalem, Jesus displays his sovereign knowledge. Jesus and, uh, and, and the band uh, were about two miles outside of Jerusalem. That's where Bethany is, like 1.7 miles. And, and he pulls two of his disciples uh, aside and sends them off uh, with very specific instructions. He tells them that they're going to go into town and into the village and they will find a donkey that is, that is tied up uh, that no one has ever ridden. And he tells them he tells them what to say in case anyone objects to them taking the donkey. The disciples go, and as Luke says, they find everything exactly as Jesus said. Now, it's one thing to know where you know somebody might keep their cattle or might keep their donkey. It's another thing to know whether or not that donkey has ever been ridden, has ever been used, right? Uh, and so now there's two uh, options here. Uh, it is possible that Jesus could have made a prior arrangement uh, with the owner of this donkey that says, "Hey, uh, you know, prepare for me a donkey that no, no one's ever been, no one's ever ridden, have ridden there, and I'll be by at some time, and I'll send some of my disciples and uh, to go to go get it." That doesn't seem to be what Luke is communicating here. Uh, the way Luke portrays it, uh, uh, Jesus is demonstrating a supernatural knowledge of what is going on here. It's very similar to when he tells them to catch a fish and they'll find the, the coins they need for the tax <laughs> to pay. Like that's, that, that's, what, that's a supernatural knowledge that Jesus occasionally displays. He displays here. But one thing that is clear is that Jesus is identifying himself with the title the Lord. 
He says, if they ask you, why are you taking the donkey? Why are you taking this colt? It says, tell them the Lord has need of it. And this is not just a general reference to God, but Jesus is identifying himself with that title. Now, there may be also a a callback here um, in uh, all the way back to Genesis 49, verse 11, which speaks of a a, a prophetic uh, picture that is given by uh, um, in Genesis 49 is uh, is. Um, Jacob, who talks about uh, in the prophecy concerning Judah of of the colt who is tied to the vine. And here there may be a significance in that Jesus is the one who unties the colt from the vine for his own purposes. Also, uh, we note that it's like, well, why does the donkey have to never have been ridden? Well, when you look at where that language is applied in the Old Testament... It is, it is for animals that are set apart for sacred usage, usually sacrifices. But there was something having to do with some kind of divine, sacred use of this animal. And so Jesus knows all of these things. And he demonstrates his lordship simply in the very preparation for his entry into Jerusalem. And so this scene here reminds us of the very simple fact that our king knows all. He knows everything. Jesus knows not merely where the donkeys can be found. He knows that he is ushering in the final stage of his earthly ministry that will culminate in his death on the cross and his resurrection. He has already called, this is the called shot that he's made several times already where he says, this is what's going to happen to me when I get to Jerusalem. He, and he knows it, and he prepares for it, and he goes for it. Why? Well, one reason that Luke records this is so that we will know with confidence that Jesus is not surprised by what happens to him. But secondly... Jesus clearly knows who he is and what his role is in his father's redemptive plan. And third, this means that that suffering is inextricably tied to the kingship of Christ. And so if Jesus displays his supreme knowledge here, certainly his knowledge is on display as he reigns over us now. From his heavenly throne. If Jesus had supreme knowledge entering into Jerusalem, does he not have supreme knowledge here now with you and I? Jesus knows the circumstances that we find ourselves in today. He knows the secrets that we keep. He knows the sins that we hide. He knows the good deeds that go unobserved. The good works that are unsung. But he will no less reward. Our king knows all. He is the knowing king. Secondly, he is the humble king in verses 35 to 36. And he's a humble king in especially in a particular way in that Christ fulfills here a humble prophecy. 
Jesus' disciples bring the donkey to him and they make a makeshift saddle for him by laying their cloaks on the back of the donkey and they pay homage to him uh, as, as he enters the city by throwing their cloaks down in front of him. The other gospel writers add that they also were throwing palm branches down in front of him, hence Palm Sunday. And, but again, why does Jesus do this? It's weird. It's unusual. Riding into town with this kind of celebration runs against the normal way that Jesus would conduct his, his ministry. Oftentimes, Luke records and the other gospel writers record, it's even a theme in the gospel of Mark, where Jesus will go out of his way to silence people who he just performed miracles for. Don't tell anyone I did this. Don't tell anybody about me. All right? And so that means when Jesus breaks a pattern, it should catch our attention. Now, one of the things that Jesus is doing here is fulfilling the prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9. And two two of the gospel writers actually explicitly uh, make this point that he is fulfilling this prophecy. And so Zechariah 9.9, everyone knows Zechariah 9.9. So for those of us who who don't, uh, uh, put it up on the screen here. Uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this, uh, the books of the Old Testament and the prophecies in the Old Testament, we have to be careful here, are not um, simply to be cherry-picked. And so there's, part of the problem is, we have, I said, part of the problem is a good thing that becomes a problem. And that we have so many prophecies concerning Christ that you kind of get, you kind of just, they just fall in this category of prophecies concerning Jesus that we don't uh, take the time uh, to actually consider the context of them, the significance of each of them. Each one has a particular meaning, a particular nuance, something that is communicating about the Messiah. Um, and so we kind of just go, oh, that's a prophecy concerning Christ, and Jesus is the Christ. There, I got it. And it's like, well, yes, that's the main point. That's absolutely true. But exactly in which way is he the Christ? In which way is he fulfilling this prophecy? And so Zechariah the prophet was, was focused on the redemption of God's people. In Zechariah chapter 3, he has a a dream about Joshua, the high priest, representing the people of God, uh, standing before God in filthy, excrement-laden garments before the Lord, condemned, being accused by the devil. And in that vision, the angel of the Lord, uh, it it says basically that Joshua, the people of God, are, are delivered. They are like a brand, a stick being pulled out of the fire. And then, uh, and then the angel instructs the attendants to strip off the filthy rags off of Joshua and to cover him with pure vestments that will never wear out. This beautiful picture of the grace of God. And then after that, he goes on to, the prophet goes on to speak of what's called the root and the branch who will come, uh, the descendant of David who will make this happen. 
And then we hear the words in Zechariah 9.9. Your king is coming humble, mounted on a donkey. Now, it's not simply that he comes, but the way in which he comes matters. Because the king comes not with blood dripping from his sword. He comes not as the destroyer, the mighty warrior, but as the humble king, the approachable king. He comes in victory, bringing peace and prosperity to those who are under his rule. Now, uh, it's interesting because uh, the question is, is, donkeys are a very humble beast, but Solomon rode a donkey into his own coronation. And so there seem to be kind of nicer royal donkeys and more humble donkeys. It's kind of like there's Honda and then there's Acura, right? There's Toyota and then there's Lexus. Right? There seems to be different versions, uh, different brands, different grades of, a, of similar modes of transportation. Uh, but even for Solomon, though, it was a sign of humility as he came in, even a sign of royal humility. And here we have royal humility. Jesus, the true king, the true son of David, the one greater than Solomon who has come to rule. And while there was humility at the beginning of Solomon's reign, it is not truly comparable to the humility of the king that now enters the gates of Jerusalem. So the answer to why Jesus did this is fairly simple. He did it to fulfill the prophecy concerning the king of Israel. There is a wonderful supernatural truth on display here regarding God's control of all things and how He works all things for, according to His holy will. But even more, we have Christ coming in humbly as the King who is greater than any king who has come before or any king who has come after. He did this to take the next step in establishing His rule as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now yesterday morning, very early in the morning, and some people got up very early to watch the coronation of the King of England. Right? I did not get up at 5 a.m. to watch it, but bless you if you did. Uh, We were given a grand spectacle on Saturday, the first coronation of a monarch in in our lifetime, and and, in practically a century. And now, if there is any visual to be applied to illustrate the phrase pomp and circumstance, that was it, right? Uh, now, of course, I have deep within me in my American anti-monarchical blood something that just says, I'm an American, I don't care about this, all right? I'm Presbyterian American at that. I really don't care about this, all right? But uh, I'm going to go watch the clips online, and it's going to be cool to see, and it's very, it'll be very ornate and beautiful and, and lovely, I'm sure. But for all that ceremony, we know that Charles is a mere man, And we also know that because of his age, this will not be the last coronation that we will see in our lifetime. 
But for all the adulation and wonder and commentary, he, commentary for what happened yesterday in England, and we wish them the best, right? Here is a monarch who is essentially at this point a figurehead. They don't have any real power. The royal family has no real power. Uh, although all the celebration, all the pomp and circumstance might lead you to assume otherwise. Right? Here's somebody who's powerful. Here's somebody. But all of that is essentially a show. And this ought to lead us to wonder then at the very exact opposite of what was on display yesterday in the entry of the king into Jerusalem in this text. And as we consider it, let us thank God for the humility of Christ our king. For while the kingship of England may have pomp, but very little power, we see here that Christ's kingship has very little pomp, but there is no king with more power than Jesus Christ. Here is a king who is able to conquer and bring judgment upon the world, who can call forth his legions of angels with a word. But here he is, entering the city on a donkey he borrowed, With humility. Why? Because he is the king who has come to redeem his people. He is the king who has come to care for the weak and the needy. The the, the king who, who has come to meet his subjects with compassion and love. The king who will, in due time, die for rebellious subjects. That we may have life and citizenship in his eternal city. Here is a king that we can access, that we can come to, that we can embrace. Indeed, the humility of Christ, it can be said, is our very salvation. As he humbles himself, taking on flesh, living in the world, enduring rejection, and as Paul says, Humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so unsurprisingly, uh, we see that Christ is not only the, the humble king, but finally he is the worthy king in verses 37 through 40. And we see this in two aspects in these last verses. And first, uh, but both have to do with his praise. First is the quality of his praise in verses 37 to 38. As Jesus is going into the city, the disciples, and this would be beyond the standard 12 disciples at this point. There was a group of roughly 90 or 120 disciples. There's kind of this unnumbered group of disciples. It varies uh, uh, depending on what context you're in. But this is a larger group of disciples. And they begin to sing. They sing part of a psalm, which, would have, uh, which was a psalm that was sung to pilgrim travelers as they would enter the city in Passover. And we'll get to exactly what they said, but Luke tells us before even what they said, Luke tells us why they were singing. They rejoiced and praised God with a loud voice because of all the mighty works they had seen Jesus perform. They had seen Jesus in action. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his teaching. They had been in his presence. And now he was coming to Jerusalem, and they can't help but praise God. 
Christian, do you know that the same Jesus we read about here is the same Jesus that is our king now? That we are in blessed union with, even closer than the people who stood nearby him or throwing their cloaks in the road. We are in closer relation to Christ than even they who were mere feet from him. We have, we have the same Savior, the same teaching, the same miracles recorded before us, the same wondrous deeds recorded before us. Granted, they were given to us in summary form in the Gospels, but here they are, wonderful nonetheless. And as Matthew Henry said, Christ's triumphs are the matter of His disciples' praises. What about Christ's mighty works move you to joy and praise for Christ today? How does Jesus move you to praise God today? What are the innumerable ways that He has held you in in the days and years since He brought you into the covenant fold? How has He lifted you time and time again from the pit, from the mud and the mire of this world? How has He freed us once again uh, when we have become snared in sin? Or we have put the shackles back on and He has come and removed them and picked us back up and placed us back on the road? The people sang here from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I read that. You know what it reminded me of? What the angels sang when He was born. You know, at our evening service, we're going to continue the, the tale of Samson and just how fall, far he, he has fallen from his birth narrative. How he just seems to act against uh, the, the, all the all, all the fanfare and all the uh, the angelic uh, 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 operations that were at work prior to his birth, and Samson seems to want to defy all those expectations. But Christ isn't like that. The angels sang about promises concerning the birth of Christ, and he fulfills them. And here is the king who comes to bring peace between God and men and glory in the highest. Now the reality here is that the scene of Jesus going going into Jerusalem must have not been that big. And it must have not been that disturbing to the life of the city or the Romans definitely would have gotten involved. They do not like this kind of thing. They don't like when people act like they're king. Okay, so they don't like that. So they will get involved if it gets crazy. So this must have been kind of a small thing. It kind of reminds me almost of when I was uh, camping with my cousin and we uh, and we, rec- we we choreographed a fight scene with sticks, you know, and record it. It's so much cooler when you're doing it and you're not watching the video replay. You're like, this looks really lame. <laughs> when we watch, we're really slow. You know, it's not that, you know, it's great. And we're, tr- and we're being very careful because we don't want to hit our hands. <laughs> you know, and so it's just like, this is not as exciting as it was. So the, the way when we were doing it, let's delete this video. In fact, let's not share this with anyone. All right. Uh, there's, there's a sense of that. It, this must have not been, this is not the coronation of Christ. 
that perhaps the disciples expected. Maybe they thought it was going to start and it was going to take off like wildfire and the city was going to come out, but that's not what happens. Now certainly Christ's disciples, we must say, sang better and more accurately than they could have understood at the moment. Uh, they, they didn't realize who Christ was. They didn't understand the nature of his kingship. They didn't, they didn't fully grasp what he was going to do. But even though we are on this side of the cross, and, and we know far better, it's been revealed to us in the scriptures uh, of, of the purpose and the nature of Christ's kingship, we can also still say that, that every day, that today, we have sung better than we actually understand. Can we truly say we, we, we accurately appreciate the beauty and the wonder of Christ our King? But when we sing about Christ, He no less deserves our praises today, even if in our hymns we sing better than we understand. Joyful, joyful, we adore Thee. I mean, do we have the joy? Do we have the adoration that we will have in times to come? No. But, and so we sing more accurately than we understand even today. And that is okay. That is the very nature of praising God, praising Christ as his people. And this brings us finally to the necessity of his praise. We have the quality of his praise, but also the necessity of his praise in verses 39 to 40. The Pharisees, of course, and they, that are nearby, they are having none of this. Uh, they are opposed to uh, the notion of Christ's rule, period. Uh, they don't even think he's the Christ. So they just, you know, they, you know what, what's this rabbi doing? Uh, but uh, so whether it's fear of the Romans, whether it's their own jealousy, whether it's their unbelief or all three, uh, they demand Jesus silence his disciples. Now the great irony here is that the disciples were singing from Psalm 118 and in that psalm uh, the nations have, have been rejecting the Lord. But here it is the leaders of Israel itself that reject the Lord and demand his people stop praising their king. And Jesus doesn't tell the Pharisees he, w- he won't because he doesn't want to because he likes the praises. He, in effect, says it's impossible to silence his praise because if he did, even the rocks of creation, some argue the stones of the very temple, would cry out in praise. And so there are thus two things that are necessary here, we learn. First, what is necessary is the kingship of Christ itself. And then secondly, it is the praise of Christ our King. Christ's kingship is necessary because it is inevitable. His kingship cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be diminished. He will rule and bless His people forever. And because His rule is inevitable, so is His praise. The stars sing. The Psalms say, the trees clap their hands for the glory of God. And Christ's church gives praise to his kingship. We do so knowing that we sing along with creation itself, with its silent worship, with its praise without words. We give words to our praise. And so the entrance of of Jesus into Jerusalem is wonderful. Even if it is muted. On the outside it probably looked like a bit of a strange scene. 
but it no less marked a milestone in the very history of redemption itself. The king had returned to Jerusalem. He would establish his rule through his death and resurrection and ascension in glory. And we may need to correct our thinking today about our Savior, even about his kingship. Here is the king who comes in humility, but he is the king who no less comes to rule. And he does rule. He rules this world. He rules his church. He rules our very hearts. But there is also something to learn here about joy. J.C. Ryle said of this scene, he said, The first joy here of the disciples as Christ enters Jerusalem would soon be broken off and exchanged for sorrow and bitter tears. But the second joy, when Christ returns, when our King returns, there shall be joy forevermore. Christ's humility here is rewarded in His ascension, but it will be fully rewarded in His return when every knee shall bow And every tongue shall confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be the triumphal entry and consummation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have our true King. Our King who knows all and thus his rule is perfect. Our King who is humble. And is accessible to his people. United to us by his very spirit. There is no king more accessible than Jesus. A king who loves his people. Who is compassionate towards us. Even though we falter and fail as citizens of heaven so often. And he is the worthy king, the king worthy of our praise, the king worthy of all glory, laud, and honor. And so, Father, we pray that we would rejoice in our King Jesus this morning, that that as we meditate upon him, we would be moved to give praise unto you for him. And may you be glorified in the worship of your people. May your son receive the praise he is due And may his rule become more and more manifest in the world as his kingdom spreads. And Lord, we pray, may our king come soon. That his rule may be established throughout the renewed universe forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's respond to God's word this morning by standing together and singing hymn 335. Take my life and let it be.
receive the benediction. May the Lord who sits enthroned as king forever give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with grace. Amen.